Right now, I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, which is an account in the Bible of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story to make a point. And we're going to pick up this story in sentence 13 of chapter 12. It'll come up on the screen for you. If you have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to get that out. But the, the, the words will come up on the screen for you here. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, so great to be with you guys here this morning. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before. And thanks so much for joining us, especially if you are new or... Um, just visiting, especially if it's your first time in a church, it's, um, it's really, really, really great to have you with us this morning. Each and every week we spend a chunk of our time together taking a passage from the Bible, having it read, and then just reflecting on it for about half an hour or so. And the reason we do this is because what you get in the Bible is a very different perspective on life. Um, what, you get, what you find in a text written 2,000 years ago, originally in a very different language to the one that anyone here would be actually accustomed to speaking, um, and on the other side of the world, it's going to give you just a different perspective on life than what you would find, say, in the Sydney Morning Herald or on Instagram or wherever else you kind of get your inputs throughout the day. But more than that, we as Christians actually believe it's not just a different perspective on life, but it's a supernatural perspective on life. What we have in the Bible is actually the God who made the universe recording for us uh, what we need to know to experience life to the full. And so that's why we do this. Uh, I'm aware that many of you will be convinced that that is what the Bible is. Some of you would not be convinced of that. But my, but my hope is, as we look at this today, that you would actually see, uh, see an answer to the question of what is life all about, and at the very least, is, is perhaps different to what you hear on, on, on any given day. So I'm just going to start our time by praying that God would be speaking to us as we look at his words in the Bible together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would thank you we can be gathered and we just have the freedom to do this and to come and, and sit and to sit before you, to look at your words and to reflect and hear you speak to us. And we just ask that you would be speaking to us through your word this morning, that you'd be helping us understand who you are and what you have done, and that we would be able to make sense of life in light of you. Amen. Now, the myth of King Midas is, is one of the better-known Greek myths, but for anyone who just needs a bit of a, a, bit of a recap, King Midas was a king in the olden times who lived in abundance and luxury. He had everything a king could ask for and enjoyed it, but in particular he loved gold and would spend his days counting his golden coins. One day Dionysus, the god of wine and partying, which is a great god to have around, was passing through Midas' kingdom when one of his fellow travelers fell behind and got lost. 
King Midas, who was out roaming his kingdom, found this traveller, gave him a meal, and then brought him back to Dionysus, who was just really, really pleased with this. And so Dionysus said to King Midas, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be granted to you. Midas thought for a minute and then came up with the following request. He asked that anything that he touched would be turned to gold. Dionysus reluctantly, I guess, warned him against this, but agreed to follow through with his promise and, and grant him his wish and told him that from the next morning, when he awoke, anything he touched would turn to gold. So waking the next morning, King Midas, eager to try out this, this new blessing, got to work. He, he touched his table and instantly it was turned to gold. He was overjoyed. He did the same with a chair. The same thing happened. Gold. He did it with the floors, the walls, the ceiling, till he was in a golden room and just utterly ecstatic at this amazing blessing that he had received. To celebrate this, he decided to sit down and enjoy a meal. And so sitting at his now golden table, he went and picked up a grape, only to find it turned to gold in his hand. Getting a bit worried, he, he did the same, picked up a piece of bread, turned to gold, picked up a glass of water, turned to gold, and he realized he couldn't eat. Panicking, he cried out, and his daughter, hearing his, father, his father's howls, ran into the room and seeking to comfort him, hugged him, and in doing so, turned to gold herself. At this point, King Midas realized that what he'd received was not a blessing, but a curse. He cried out, he called Dionysus back and begged him to return this, which Dionysus did for him. And from that day forward, his, his daughter was returned to life. King Midas no longer valued gold, but he appreciated all the things that he took for granted before. It's a pretty like, simple myth with a very simple moral, which is simply that there is more to life than wealth. And if you haven't heard that claim in, in the myth of King Midas, you would have heard it a hundred other different times in, in books, in TV shows, in movies, because it is a pretty common one. It's the same moral of, of the Great Gatsby. It's the same moral of James Cameron's Titanic that, that true life isn't to be found in first class with all the rich people, but where the real life happens down in the, in the lower decks. It's the story of, of Breaking Bad, the desire to set out to make some money to initially help his family, ends up destroying him and his family. We are on board, I think, because we hear it so much, these stories that say, look, there is more to life than wealth. And I think there's a level to which most people know this to be true. When you hear like cliche lines like the best things in life are free or the most important things in life aren't things or money can't buy happiness, we think, yeah, like I get that, where I'm on board with that. My guess would be if I asked you and did a show of hands what, you know, what the most important thing in life is, very few people would first go to money as being the most important thing in life. But what is peculiar about this is that I think often we have a sense of cognitive dissonance when it comes to this topic, that we know, at least in our head on some level where we can affirm there is more to life than money, on a deeper level we struggle to believe that. I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of being in kind of some big tourist skyscraper tall building type place where they've got one of those glass floors that you can step on and look down at you know, 100 metres down to the city streets below. And as you step onto the glass platform, you know in your head that it will have been designed professionally with the same standards and rigor that it would have been if it was made of steel, that the glass will be thick, that it will have been certified, and it will not fall, and it will be just as safe as any other floor in the building. The only difference is that you can see through it. But although you know that in your head, you've got another system operating that's kind of deeper, more driven on just impulse and reflex, that means that when you step onto the glass, 
you feel that panic and that fear. That you struggle to believe what you know in your head that you will not fall. I think similarly that's how it is often with the belief that wealth isn't everything. Something deeper in us is not convinced. And the reason is that money can afford us all kinds of possibilities. And it seems that the thing that is just that little bit out of reach that, will, that we think will give us comfort or security or happiness or enjoyment can often be attained with money. We think to ourselves, if I just had that little bit more than I've currently got in terms of money, I wouldn't be driving this car, I'd be driving that car. And then I'd be happy. Or I wouldn't be doing these kind of holidays, I'd be doing those kind of holidays, and I would love life. Or if I had that little bit more, I wouldn't need to work as many hours as I am now, and I could just relax. Or I'd be able to rent a better place than the place I'm currently renting. Or I'd be able to buy a place. Or I'd be able to buy a better place than this place. Or renovate this place to make it the way that it actually needs to be to make me a happy person. Or to be able to get the holiday house, or to get the kids into the school that I want them to go to, or to be debt-free, or have a passive income, or to be able to get the, all the clothes that I want, or eat out more often, whatever it is, we have this thing that's just that little bit out of reach, and the way to bridge the gap is money. But I'm sure many of you have been in the situation where you've actually managed to bridge that gap, and all you find is there's just another gap yet to bridge, a new point on the horizon to move toward. John Rockefeller, who in his time in the 20th century was the richest man in the world, was famously asked by a journalist, look, how much is enough? To which he quickly replied, just a little more. And my guess is that you can resonate with that feeling. It's not that surprising that we feel that way. I don't think we should feel that guilty about it. We live in the era of advertising where there are just countless people that have studied for years and years and are getting paid a lot of money to make sure that at any given moment, there is something that each and every one of us, will be, that we believe will make us happy and be prepared to hand over our money in order to attain. So on one level, while we know when we hear these glib lines, money can't buy happiness, we kind of know that on one level. But on a deeper level, the level of our daydreaming, the level of just how content we feel at any given moment, or how we spend our time and efforts often tells a different story. For each of these three weeks in this Mortal Life series, we're looking at a story that Jesus tells where he offers a perspective on the question of what is life all about. And today we're looking at a story that is specifically a warning against the belief that wealth is all that matters. And like most, if not all, of the stories that Jesus tells, this story is sparked by something that Jesus has observed in one of his hearers. So we'll pick it up in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Someone comes to Jesus because at this point in his life he was a respectable person, seen as, like a, as a person of great knowledge or wisdom, like a rabbi. And he asks Jesus to get involved in this family dispute over inheritance. And it's interesting, he doesn't come in and say, hey, Jesus, look, we can't figure this out. Can you just make a judgment and figure it out for us and just tell us what you think is right? He comes with what he's already decided, that he wants some inheritance that he's not currently getting, and he demands that Jesus sort it out for him. And despite being something that happened 2,000 years ago, it's a remarkably and depressingly familiar situation. 
that it's tragically common that following a death, families, rather than coming together both to grieve but also to appreciate life and those who remain, are instead torn apart by the desire to get this particular dead person's stuff. And we're not told in this story exactly kind of what the the details are of this disagreement, whether this guy who's come to Jesus is in fact being ripped off or whether things are being carried out according to his father's wishes or whatever it is. But what Jesus does detect in him is something that Jesus describes as greed or what he sums up as, um, uh, I guess, believing that life is about an abundance of possessions. Look at what he says. Jesus replied, this is verse 14, Man... Who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kind of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is the point Jesus wants to make. He sees in this guy a deep-held belief that what matters most is getting more stuff. And so he tells a story to make a point. Verse 16, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. So we are introduced to a man who is already described as being rich. And you know that he's rich because he owns land. Most people in most of time haven't been landowners. And this is a person in this agricultural society who holds land, which is the key to wealth. But more than the wealth he already has... He then, on top of that, gets this super abundant harvest. It's a bumpy year. It's an amount of crop that he wasn't expecting. His land has provided exuberantly and in excess of his need. And so he asks himself a question. He says, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Now, as much as he poses this question, and and you and I, faced with the same question, might be asking the question, yeah, am I going on a cruise? Am I doing around the world? Am I retiring? What am I doing? The original hearers of Jesus' story aren't really wondering how he's going to answer this because there is only one right answer. For a good Jewish man in Jesus' society to be blessed above and beyond what you've expected from God, the answer to the question, what do I do with this, is to bless others. To share with those less fortunate than yourself. There's only so much grain you can have and enjoy. The obvious answer that people would be expecting from him is to say, well, I'll share it. Everyone can enjoy the spoils of God's generosity. But that's not what he concludes. In verse 18, Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You see the opposite conclusion to what would be expected. Rather than seeing his wealth as an opportunity to bless and to share, he hoards. And he hoards wastefully. You even get that little just note that he even just tore down perfectly good barns that he already had just to build bigger ones. It's this wasteful excess. And it stops with him. And money is always a means to an end. It's not just the wealth in and of itself that he's after. He, he opens up with what he really is after. He wants to take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But it's completely inward. He's even talking to himself in it. He doesn't bring anyone else in for advice. There's no evidence that he's got any other family or anything else going on. He says, I'll say to myself, this is what it's going to be. 
he's made what is a pretty straightforward and simple equation. More wealth equals more happiness. The more you have, the happier you'll be. The more at peace you'll be, the more relaxed you'll be, the more in control you'll be, the more secure you'll be. I think that's the equation that we find it really easy to get caught up in. If I could just get over this threshold of enough, then I'm going to have this elusive contentment. I just need a bit more and then I can be happy because more wealth equals more happiness. But the point of this parable is that although that's a really simple bit of maths to do in your head, it's, it's bad maths because it's actually not true. And one benefit we've got that wasn't around in Jesus' day is that people have got the resources to actually study this question, to, to do deep psychological studies on what is the correlation between owning wealth and experiencing happiness. And they, some university put out one of these studies every few years, and time and time again, they find that there is a correlation between happiness and wealth, but only to an extent. And it's not the extent to which most of us would think. It tracks that more money generally does mean describing yourself as being more happy up until the point that you've got a roof above your head, you're eating three meals a day and they're predictably coming, you know there's going to be three meals today, three meals tomorrow, and the ability to treat yourself occasionally. And then the correlation breaks down. The most recent study I was able to find this week on this was they put that number between sixty-five dollars and $90,000. And at that point, the correlation just completely changes. They found that for someone who's earning kind of an average income, quadrupling the amount of money a person owns, earns in a year is roughly the same bump to happiness as a person who has a weekend once a week experiences. Which if, like for me, that's like, that can't be right. They must have stuffed up the study because it's so hard to believe that if you found out tomorrow you're going to be earning four times as much as you're earning at the moment, that you'd only be made as happy by that in the long run as if you just had a weekend once a week. We find it hard to believe that, that wealth doesn't actually give what it says that it will. But Jesus doesn't actually delve into like psychology or statistics to kind of show the folly of this belief. He goes a different route altogether and he holds up in stark terms wealth's ultimate limitation. As we continue on through Jesus' parable in verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Jesus takes this kind of simple equation, more wealth equals more happiness, and he, he introduces another couple of factors that up until now this guy has not factored into his calculation. Firstly, the reality of God, but then secondly, the reality of death. Up until this point in the story, there's been no mention of God. Everything's been just the, the logic of a closed system, that this life is what there is. If I get this stuff, I can make myself happy. But then Jesus says this, this line where God says, this very night your life will be demanded from you, which is just a euphemism from saying God struck him dead. And it changes everything. And it just... This is just a story that Jesus is telling. This isn't Jesus saying this is how God kind of operates on a day-by-day -day basis or anything like that. But he's saying this story with this shocking and abrupt plot twist as a challenge to anyone who is resting easy in the assumption that more wealth will just lead to more happiness. 
He's pointing out that there's a worldview that this guy in the story, this builder of barns, is living under. This worldview that he has is probably shared with the guy, the real person who asked Jesus the question about dividing the inheritance. That their worldview doesn't necessarily factor in the possibility of a God, and certainly not a God who has the right or the ability to demand a life. Rather, they're living out a worldview that is self-centered with the belief that their desires are ultimate. Because if you believe that you are the middle of the universe, then any wealth that comes your way, the natural thing to say that, well, that's about me. The purpose of wealth is to maximize my comfort on this earth. But Jesus challenges that presupposition. He suggests that maybe, and what we need to factor in is that we're not the center of the universe, but there is actually a God who holds our life in his hands. And in grappling with the question, what is life all about, or what is wealth all about, or what should I do with what I have, he needs to be factored into that equation. So that's the first reality, that, 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 that there is a God. And the second is death. And maybe you're someone here today, maybe you believe in God, maybe you don't, but I know for sure that every single person in this room does fundamentally believe in the concept of death. We know it is there. We know it is one of the few certainties of life that death is coming. And yet, like the man in this story, it is so easy to leave that out of the equation. We think that our lives are ours to do what we want with, to hand over or to end when we are done with them. But that is not the world we live in. When I was younger, I had a friend bring over a Nintendo 64 to our place, which was, which was great because I didn't grow up with a Nintendo. This is when I was like 18 or so. So I could finally just binge out on, on Mario Kart 64, Super Smash Brothers, play it to my heart's content. And he came over and played some Nintendo and then said, look, I'm not really playing it much. Why don't you just mind it for a month or two? And I was like, that's a great idea. And so he went... And then he, about a month later, he actually changed his plans and he moved overseas for two years. So I had the Nintendo this whole time and I, I forgot about him. He was gone, he was out of my life, the Nintendo remained. But a few years later, he actually came back and then out of the blue, I got a text message being like, hey man, do you reckon I could come pick up that, that Nintendo? And I was offended by this suggestion. In the time that I'd, uh, that I'd had it, it had become mine. I had forgotten that I had done nothing, I hadn't bought it, we hadn't agreed that it, he hadn't given it to me. He specifically said, you can mind it for me. But the idea of handing it back, I found to be an offensive suggestion. I think we can find it really confronting the idea that we will have to hand back our lives even though we did nothing to gain them in the first place. That one day our lives will end and the scary thought that we try to avoid, but I want us to sit in for a minute, is that we don't know when that's going to be. We don't know whether that will come in 2050, or if you were young here, 2080, or whether it will be in 2024. But the one thing that is for certain is that wealth will not dictate when that day comes. And when that day comes, your wealth will not do anything for you. What you have made and what you have built will no longer be yours. It cannot save you but also you cannot take it with you. And on your deathbed, it will likely mean nothing to you. Jesus is intentionally confronting us with a reality that we so often forget. And it's even ironic that the person in the first instance he's telling this story to is someone who has just, presumably in the days or weeks earlier, lost his father. His father is freshly buried in the ground. He has just seen death firsthand 
And yet, rather than grappling with the reality of death, he is arguing about money. And this story is meant to say to him from Jesus, dude, you've just seen how life ends, that we have a death coming for every single one of us and we need to be prepared for that. And you are talking about money. You are wanting to maximize riches and possessions for yourself. You've missed the point. There is something greater at stake, which is your soul. And so after, after Jesus has taken this story into a pretty dark place, he, he finishes it with one more line, which maybe just takes it just one line even slightly darker, so, so bear with me, in which he says, in verse 21, This is how it would be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. This is the point in which Jesus invites everyone along for the ride into this story, with the point that this parable has something to teach every single person, which is the reality that is spoken about in this parable will be for anyone who stores up things for themselves, who makes that what life is all about. He's not saying if you go out and build yourself a garage or rent a storage unit or set up a bank account just to store some stuff that you better be looking over your shoulder for an instant death. That's not what his point here at all. But what he is saying is that if you make as your priority, as what life is all about, the amassment of personal wealth and assets, a time will come in which you have nothing. But seeking to use wealth to build a personal bubble of comfort or freedom or security, one day that bubble will burst. And you may find in that moment that you're leaving this world with nothing. You may find that you've been tricked by what Jesus elsewhere describes as the deceitfulness of wealth. That you in fact may not have been owning your possessions, but perhaps they were owning you. That your desire to have more may have obscured your ability to factor in the single greatest reality there is. That is that there is a God who made and gives life and who holds your life in his hands. And I want to urge you to be careful as you read this story that you don't just think, well, this is made for something else. I really wish that some rich guy that I know could hear this story because this isn't a message just for like you know, fat cats on Wall Street out there somewhere. Because Jesus is warning everyone. The man who Jesus is speaking to isn't necessarily wealthy. He's just someone who wants wealth. Because it is possible to be successful in business or be skilled in some trade that brings wealth to you and not have that wealth consume you. To hold it loosely and generously and wisely. And on the flip side, it's possible to have nothing, just to live paycheck to paycheck on a modest income, but to have your thoughts utterly consumed by wealth. And the question Jesus is posing is not how much wealth do you have or what do you own, but how much does wealth own you? Do you believe that wealth, and do you believe on this deep level, that wealth will grant you life and ultimate satisfaction? Because Jesus, if that is you, is saying beware, because life does not consist in abundance of possessions. So Jesus is clearly saying wealth is not the answer. And that might have been something that you were like convinced of coming in today and just, just a little helpful reminder, like, just like many of the other stories, TV shows, movies that we've heard would say that wealth is not the answer, there is something more. But the real question then is, well, what is the more? If there is more to life than wealth, what is the more? What is life about? Is there anything that even that we could possibly value or possess or live for that won't be taken from us on the day that death invariably comes? Is there anything we could have and live for and value that would make sense in light of a God-filled reality? 
And Jesus' answer that he puts forward is just a three-word answer that he contrasts with someone who is storing up possessions from themselves. He says the other road to life is to be what he calls rich toward God. Jesus says there is another type of riches that are available. Not in one's personal collection of physical assets, but it is possibly rich in respect to God, rich in the eyes of God. And he actually goes on a bit later in this chapter that wasn't read to us before to describe what this looks like. After Jesus finished telling this story, we don't have time to go all into it today, but he anticipates the most obvious question people will ask in response to it, which is, if I'm not looking after myself, if I'm not building up wealth for myself, then am I going to be okay? Am I going to be looked after? Maybe I'm going to miss out. And Jesus says, no, you don't need to worry about that. God will provide for your needs. God is the one who can do this. And after that, he then goes on to say, though, forget about wealth for a minute. If you want the good life, if you want to tap into what life is all about, here's what you need to know. If you want to be free from the consuming desire for more and instead be what he describes as rich towards God, this is what he says to do from verse 32 to verse 34. It'll be on the screen. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's a few things, we've only got a few more minutes, but a few things going on here as Jesus lays out the alternative path to the rat race of building up, amassing, and consuming wealth. And the first thing he points in, and his starting point in this whole idea of thought, is that God is generous. The richness toward God begins with understanding God's overwhelming generosity towards us. And this is a really important concept if you're someone who is just exploring what Christianity is about, trying to boil it down to what's the big idea that, that Christians are on about. And I think this is helpful because the key to understanding Christianity is that the heart of it is not about what God asks us to give him, but in understanding what he has given us. And Jesus draws to mind the idea of like a wealthy father who is not just the owner of some land, but the owner of a kingdom. And he says that it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That this guy that Jesus is speaking to has found himself in a situation where he thought he was going to inherit something or deserves to inherit something from his father, but has been left out of the will. But Jesus says, actually, that is not the place that you find yourself in. That your heavenly Father is not stingy or holding back, but has offered you everything that he is and everything that he has. He's invited you to partake in his kingdom. And this is just kind of Jesus' language to say he's inviting you into being able to know him, live with him, and enjoy him and everything that he has, not just in this life, but for eternity that you can know and hold dear to your heart that you are unconditionally loved by the God who made you. And that Jesus, the Son of God, unlike, in, again, in the story, this guy's arguing with his brother who's holding out on him and not sharing the inheritance, that Jesus isn't like that with us. That Jesus is the true Son of God, the one who deserves everything that God has made and has done, and it was generously decided to share with us, even to the point of going and dying in our place, so that our sin and our evil wouldn't be a barrier to us experiencing this kingdom. 
And that reality is worth more than anything that money could buy. Because it's an invitation into something eternal and permanent that we might know and enjoy God forever. That's, what, that's the key to understanding what it is to be rich toward God. It's an understanding that the thing that is worth more than anything in the world is God himself and he's given himself to you. And then that reality then leads to the choice that Jesus delves into, which is then, well, with our limited life and decisions and choices we have, what are we going to decide to value? What are we going to store up for ourselves? Is it going to be stuff on earth where that's going to eventually it's going to get, could get robbed, it could go rusty or moths will eat it up, whatever it is, or is it going to be something permanent? Treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? And from Jesus' perspective, is it going to be something that's one day when death comes going to be proven to be completely worthless in the long run, or is it going to be something that's going to last and that you will value and treasure forever? When I was a little kid, I had a, um, about 12 years old, I had a stamp collection. And because I also wanted to have friends, it was a secret stamp collection. Um, because I was savvy enough to know that they don't go together. And so I would get stamps on a weekly kind of basis. I'd get the envelopes and hold them above the kettle steam to get the stamps off, put them in a book. I'd go to the post office and get special release stamps, collect them all up, ask around, get a few trusted extended family members to store their stamps for me as well. I'll let you in on something. It wasn't because I love stamps. It's because, and I don't know where, because I don't think anyone told me this, but I'd, I'd, I'd come to the belief that if I did this, that one day, 20 years down the track or so, I'd be able to cash in these stamps for a great, great sum of wealth. And they were going to appreciate that it would be worth something in the future. And although it was a lot of hard work now collecting these stamps, I was setting myself up for the future. Now, the funny thing happened recently where it's actually 20 years on. And so I went and had a look. It was in storage at my parents' house. I got the stamp collection out. It was still there. And I went on eBay to do a bit of valuation. And you're not going to believe this, but they're actually worthless. <laughs> um, it turns out that I think someone would pay maybe... I saw people selling similar collections for $10 including postage, but I figured out it would cost $10 to post them. So I think genuinely worthless. But at the time, I was convinced that this effort was going to pay off, that I was storing up something that was just going to be valuable down the track. Jesus is saying to us, are we like children, storing up something that we believe in the moment is going to be what life is all about? This is where happiness is going to be, this is going to be value, valuable, and in the process, missing the real treasure. Do you have something that could outlast even death itself? Jesus says that it's... It is an obvious answer what you should pursue. And so he says, look, earthly stuff, it's not going to be worth it. So you can even give it away. You can become generous and give stuff to people that have less because hoarding it for yourself isn't going to do you any good at all. So he says it's a smart investment decision, but he also gives another reason. And this is what I want to end on, on his, on his very last line, if it's still up there in verse 34, where he says this, and this, this is something you could, you could go away and just reflect on for days where he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart be also. Jesus is making the case that what you treasure, that is what you love, what you think about, what you prioritize, has the power to transform who you are. When he says the heart, that's kind of the accepted way of even describing the self or the inner being or who you are really, truly deep down. He's saying what you treasure will dictate the who you are. And this is what he says about what we value. 
It's worth thinking about what treasuring wealth and money does for you as a person. I know I say this in myself. Because I do he- I, heaps often. Like I, haven't, I haven't got over this. I often find myself believing that having some more money is going to make my life a whole lot better. And when I kind of buy into that belief, I see myself changing and it's not in a good way. It changes my outlook on any given day where I'm just kind of looking for opportunities just to kind of hold on to stuff and, and to cut back and, 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 and hope that when a need comes up that someone else around me will, will meet it so that I don't have to. It makes me insecure about the things that I have. It makes me worry that if people see the car that I drive, if you've ever seen a little 1987 Corolla with the cobwebs on it, like I start thinking, what does this say about me that I don't have much? Or it, or it, it makes me me just anxious, just kind of worrying, am I going to have enough in the, in, the, in the months and the years to come? But I think most of all, and the, and the effect it has on me, I think, most clearly, is a sense of discontentment. When I buy into the belief that having more will make me more happy, I instantly become discontent with what I have. All the amazing things I have aren't enough because it's, what I really need is something down the track. With that comes being ungrateful and entitled, and stingy and non-generous. And my guess would be you can relate to some of that. That the more you love wealth, that doesn't serve to make you a better person. It makes you a worse person. It corrupts you. I think one of the best images of that is in, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, of the relationship between Gollum and the ring. The more he fixes his attention on this small thing and it consumes him, it transforms him and destroys him from the outside in. But my experience on the flip side has been, and I know this is true of many others here, that when I make God my treasure, like intentionally remind myself of what I, what I truly value and what I live for and what I have, that God is my source of meaning, of joy, of security and freedom, that too transforms me day by day. And it takes me in an opposite direction. It takes me to a place of contentment, of being glad of what I already have and what has been given to me of being light with what I, what I own and being just free to, to spend or give as needed. It takes me to a place of just peace, of not worrying about what the future and what's going what to bring because I've got a God who cares for me and loves me and looks after me. It changes you. This belief that God is treasure. It's not a coincidence that historically, churches have been the institutions most able to get people to raise money to start things like orphanages, hospitals, schools, charities, sponsored children networks. Because the belief that God is everything, that he is the most important thing in life and living for him is the most important thing, loosens your grip on money. So I just want to hold out that there is a treasure worth finding, that Jesus is holding out something that is better than anything we could accumulate for ourselves in this life. And if that is something you're yet to be convinced of, I just want to say thank you so much for even being willing to look into it. And I want to encourage you to keep exploring that reality. We're going to spend more time on this even next week as we, as we ask the question, is there more to life than finding the one? And we look at another story of Jesus where he talks about this idea of what do we treasure. We've got Alpha coming up in a few weeks as well that Jez mentioned. You can write on the white card if you want more, more information about that. But I'm just going to pray now as we finish our time that we would be able to see and appreciate and know and understand just the goodness of God and what we have in him. And that would be transforming us as people, that, that we would treasure him and our hearts would be changed in light of that. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that we can spend time as we have done looking at, at these words of Jesus. And we know that they're confronting words because we, we don't like thinking about death. Death is, a, is a, a horrible and stark reality in our world. We thank you that you've provided an ultimate answer to the, to the problem of death as well in Jesus. That even though the day will come and that we will die, that that day does not need to be the end. That you, the giver of our lives in the first place, have opened the door to life eternal. And we just pray that we would know that reality, that we would see who you for who you are, your love for us, and understand that. And for anyone who is here who is searching, as I'm sure some are, who are looking for an answer, who are looking to find something that can consume their hearts and transform them in, to, in, the, in the way that you would have them transformed into understanding what life is about, we ask that you continue that work. And we pray that you would just continue to be setting us free from the love of money and from greed and the belief that life consists in the abundance of possessions. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.